0: <laughs> hey folks. We are live. You have just seen us scrambling to get things going. So, here we are. Welcome to the Dark here Horse are. podcast. Is this our 29th 29th yep. live stream? In a few short months. In a few short months. Yes. So, we've got uh, lots to do and talk about today. We are also being filmed as we speak by CBS, which wants to talk about cancel culture. I don't know if they have advanced warning that we are soon to be canceled again, but it is possible that another (laughs) cancellation is coming. So keep your eye out for that. I have also asked them if we could possibly talk on CBS about Unity 2020, and that possibility exists. So please keep your eye out for further information that may come across your regular old TV through the network. In the meantime...
1: Should we also say that, did you already say that Zach is uh, a couple hundred miles away today?
0: Yes, Zach has run off. He put, <laughs> a, uh, he put a, a sheet and he filled it with some clothes and I don't know what else, a laptop, and he threw it over a stick on his shoulder and he mm, wandered off and he's gotten a couple hundred miles away. Um, he is re- remotely monitoring this, but he's in no position to save us if things go wrong. So yeah. let's hope they do not. All right. All right. Dr. Hyang. Dr. Weinstein. Um, I have promised my Twitter followers that I will talk about Unity 2020 at the top here so they Do don't it. have to wait if that's what they're waiting for. Oh, I see. I've got things sticking up and back. Well, there's nothing to be done at this uh, point, I'm is like there? A bunny rabbit. Uh, <laughs> okay, Unity 2020. Yeah. Here's, the, here's the deal. It is going great at one level. We are discovering the most amazing set of patriots. These are people who are um, frightened about where we're headed people who love their country and are ready to sacrifice for it, and they are showing up to offer all kinds of help, skills that we definitely need. So things are rapidly in motion. Um, As I have mentioned before, there is a curious lack. The people who tell us that they are very much on board with the plan do not always do anything that allows us to count them so that we can say how many people are actually rooting for us. And I wanted to talk a little bit about why I think that might be. So
1: before you talk about why you think there's a, a, a failure somewhere, why don't you say both here, why don't you bracket this conversation by saying, what what should be happening? What would you like people to be doing?
0: Well, here's the long and short of it. The long and short of it is there is exactly one thing mm-hmm. that we do not have. And this plan could actually work, believe it or not. It is not too late. Everything that needs to happen can happen. What we need is a visible groundswell of American citizens eligible to vote.
1: Right, but what, where do they sign up?
0: They like, go oh, to, where's
1: the place that you want them to be signing up?
0: We want them to go to yeah. the website um, articlesofunity.org. You will find there are links to offer your volunteer support to sign up for our email list and let us know um, where you are and what you're thinking. So please do that. You should also follow our Twitter account if you are on Twitter, Articles of Unity, at Articles of Unity. Those are the places to go. Um, There will be more opportunities showing up this week. And so anyway, those are the places to sign up for you to find out about what is emerging. And yes, we are looking for your help. But really you want to do something for us? Find two people with ears to hear and tell them. That's it. Two people. And then you ask them, can you find two people? That'll work, right? But you
1: won't know that will have happened unless they also sign
0: up. Unless they show up at those, at those, uh, addresses. Yeah. All right. So now I want to talk to you. I'm noticing I need to center myself a little bit more in the shot. Okay. (laughs) Um, here's the model that I came up with as I was driving back from dropping Zach at his, uh, bicycle maintenance course that he is taking. What I realized was that we are hearing pushback from a couple of quadrants. And one of those quadrants are people who say things to us like, "Um, this sounds like a great plan. How about waiting till 2024 when we've already allowed joe biden to clear donald trump from the white house etc cetera, etc cetera. could you please just shelve this plan seems really cool but
1: I, I gotta say that sounds like a great idea because it will give all of the enemies of the plan much more time to organize and and get their shit together
0: i hadn't even thought of that that's yeah. a great point yeah. Here's the thing. If you are somebody who has been alarmed about the corruption of our system and the role that the duopoly plays in that corruption, if you've been aware of that for decades, then you know that every single election cycle we go through this, right? You say, you know what? This is not going to solve itself. The duopoly has a lock on power, and that lock on power is being used to serve interests that are not the interests of the American people. What are we going to do about it? If well, you why don't say, you just that, go through the
1: normal channels,
0: go, go through the normal channels. But if you say, well, we've done that, and it doesn't work, and you say, maybe we have to do something else, what happens next is people say, ah, if you do something else, you will elect the greater evil, and this will be your fault, right? Mm-hmm. And nobody wants it to be your fault, yeah. right? Um, we've seen that happen to people like yep. Ralph Unity Nader. Unity 2020
1: is being set up to explain the re-election of Trump, right? when in fact, we can squarely point at the DNC.
0: Well, first of all, the DNC is responsible for this in more ways than one the RNC as well. The duopoly has uh, played tag team with their little corruption racket. And uh, so in any case, you will hear each election cycle, you will hear you're going to elect the greater evil and this is going to be your fault. And then if you persist, you will be told, well, you can't do it this time because of the Supreme Court, right? This is just every single single election cycle.
1: It's amazing. The Supreme Court always seems to be on the verge of retirement and collapse.
0: It's funny. It's almost as if it's staffed by mortals who have a <laughs> lifespan and ultimately end up retiring and need to be replaced. Yeah. So it's never the and time you know, for something new. N- not
1: to suggest that the makeup of the Supreme Court isn't critical, but it's it's always sort of, I don't know, what was that, the second or the third rejoinder to um, it has to be now.
0: Well, let's put it this way. The fact that it is critical this time is not an argument against something different because it only gets more critical over time. So if you think it's critical now and that's a reason not to do it, you've actually got it backwards. Now is the time we have to do it because next time it's gonna be even more critical. Well, maybe
1: people are suggesting going back in time.
0: If they have a mechanism, I'm all ears. (laughs) But in any case, here's the thing. I've heard so many times that you can't do it because you'll elect a greater evil. The whole structure of this plan is built to address that concern, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have that problem because we have structurally um, built a mechanism that will not spoil the election. So in spite of that fact, we are getting this pushback from certain people who say, lovely plan, all ears, do it in 2024 and uh, we'll get on board, but not now because of the problem. So I want to tell you about my model that I came up with as I was driving back. The model is this. For many people, Donald Trump is the equivalent of a rock in your shoe, right? If you've ever had a rock in your shoe, and we've all had rocks in our shoe, right? A rock in your shoe is top priority. It's very hard to ignore, right? Every step, it reminds you that this has to be dealt with. And there are a lot of people who are experiencing Trump as the rock in their shoe that needs to be dealt with. But we've got a rock in our shoe at the same time that we've got basically the equivalent of a famine, right? We have a duopoly that has concentrated its power and built a system that you can never escape and it has essentially denied people access to the policy mechanisms that are supposed to serve their needs and this has gone on for decades. And because of that, people are not only frozen out of the well-being that they produce through their labor, but they are also aware of it and they're sick of it. They know that the system is rigged. They may not know exactly in what way it is rigged, but they're angry. And here's the important point. Whether or not the rock in the shoe is the one thing you can think of, or it's one on a set of high priorities that all have to be addressed has to do in some sense with how threatened by the famine you are. If you're especially well positioned in society, then from your perspective, it may well make sense. We have to deal with the rock in our shoe because even in a famine, you wouldn't want to leave a rock in your shoe because whatever you're going to do to deal with the famine, getting the rock out of your shoe first makes sense. So if you're not directly threatened by the famine, then you will think rock in your shoe is the only thing we got. And you'll say stuff like, well, why don't you wait till 2024, right? Let's deal with the rock in our shoe. And then 2024, we can deal with the famine. But for anybody who's either starving or threatened with starvation, that doesn't make any sense because the rock in the shoe is a high priority and the famine is a high priority. And we're going to have to do something to deal with both of them. Maybe we got to get the rock out, but we've also got to deal with the famine And here's an election in which you could do both.
1: Could I read to you a couple of sentences from an excellent document that I found from almost 10 years ago? Please do. Recent decades, this is from 2011. Recent decades have witnessed a de facto coup against the democratic structures of the world and the wholesale capture and sabotage of the entire public regulatory apparatus. The co-opted structures have been redirected and now serve to liquidate the world's resources and concentrate wealth and power in the hands of a tiny, unelected elite. Only the costs remain public. And it goes on. This is from the Declaration of Interdependence, which you wrote during (laughs) Occupy and which proceeds to make a number of highly specific and actionable bullet points about what to do. Just to the argument that not now, not now, please wait until next time when there's a greater chance of success, when there will presumably be no two evils to choose between. This was the first time that I know that you had formalized in writing uh, some of exactly the concerns that you have laid out in the first, whatever, five minutes of this live stream today. This is from 2011.
0: That's amazing. Thank you. You know, I have thought frequently during this Unity 2020 phase, I've thought about Here that document, and I just ha- literally have not had the time to go find it. Um, but yeah, I wrote the Declaration of Interdependence, mm-hmm. and it's it uh, lays out exactly the problem. And what that tells you is that the fact that that uh, bit that you read there is equally applicable today right. <laughs> that tells you some of us have been aware of this for quite some time mm-hmm. and we've tried to call people's attention to mm-hmm. it and what people and, have been is too calm to address it
1: yeah and yeah, you know, let me say that you know we we as as we have been making clear throughout you know had been anyway still are you know, lifelong democrats liberals progressives uh you know much to the irritation of some in our audience but um this was written in 2011 this was written during obama's first term we we were so hopeful about obama in the beginning and that does not mean that we did not critique during his his first and certainly his second term what it was that was actually being accomplished after that great rhetorical movement that actually got him elected and it was it's what it was it was rhetoric
0: it was a rhetoric it was a rhetorical movement you're absolutely right yeah. about that and you know I still like a lot of the rhetoric, but the fact is it it didn't translate (laughs) into policy that served people. And what that tells you is that the duopoly, I mean, let's face facts, folk. They they don't want to solve the problem, not because they wouldn't ideally like to do it also, but it is counterproductive from the point of view of the thing that they actually do, which is deliver well-being to a small number of very powerful entities that have Mm -hmm. bought access right? It's, it's an influence peddling racket. So we shouldn't expect them. We should expect them to deliver us rhetoric and symbolism and um, false solutions um, until we finally get wise to it. And my point would be, well, maybe it's time we finally got wise to it. I mean, collectively, enough that uh, we can actually evict them from the positions from which they capture all of the well-being that should be widely available and deliver it to their own. It's really, uh, it's quite a thing. But if you are hearing the same thing we are hearing, if you are hearing people say, well, that's a cool plan, how about we try that in 2024, think about whether or not the people who are telling you that are really telling you that from their perspective, the famine isn't such a big deal, because on the whole, the duopoly has probably inadvertently, in most of their cases, served their interests just by virtue of where in society they are. And for people who are closer to the bottom of the ladder or who have fallen off the bottom of the ladder, this has been critical for decades, right? The danger to to working people is so extreme that now we see uh, quite predictable uh, movements in the street of people, frankly, shouting incoherently to tear the thing down because all they can see is the harm that it does because that harm is concentrated where they are. So um, that is all very important. Now I would point to the last thing here which is really the place that's harder uh that that I find hardest to make the point. It has long been true that the Democratic Party in particular has delivered symbolism in lieu of actual well-being, right? That's been their go-to strategy. This which time, party
1: did you say is particularly uh prone to that?
0: Well, it's not that one party is particularly prone to it. It's that The Democratic Party has traditionally served the interests of working people, and so having shifted away from that, now Mm -hmm. it has to deliver symbolism in lieu of actual policy. You know, back symbols are cheaper; they are cheaper. But Mm -hmm. in this case, the symbols have begun to run out. People aren't buying it anymore, right? Mm -hmm. We went through eight years of Obama, and things did not get better. So we know that the rhetoric doesn't add up to policy that actually serves people. We know that we still have, um, you know. a system of medical care, for example, that people can't access, and that is dependent on their relationship with their employer, and that the mm-hmm. economic system is fragile in the way it's constructed, and so you can lose your health care, you know, at the drop of a hat. Um, so, what has changed is the Democratic Party seems to be toying with a mechanism to deliver many people who are stressed out by what I'm calling the famine to deliver them something, but the something that they're going to deliver is well-being that currently is. Um, held by other people who are in a similar strata. In other words, the intersectional thing is about pointing people who are angry about having been frozen out, redirecting them away from the places where well-being is actually concentrated and pointing them at another group of citizens. And this is the most deeply unpatriotic move you can imagine. Pointing Americans at each other rather than dealing with the fact that opportunity has concentrated at the top is just appalling.
1: Uh, To use the um, the pie analogy, the zero sum, non zero sum uh, uh, language that we have used, uh, it is possible uh, that growth, some growth in some sectors, can continue. But even if we assume that we are in zero sum space at a national level with regard to well being, and I'm not saying that that's true, but even if we assume that, what you are saying, if I if I hear you correctly, is there is some some pie um, for you know, and this is going to be hard to operationalize, but, you know, for well-being, which is, you know, to some degree that good proxy is resources there for all of Americans. <clears throat> and what you were pointing out is that the elite, the 1%, the people with power, um, have observed that a number of people are seeing this, you know, since Occupy, since before then, right, and saying, well, if we can pit some of the kind of haves against the um, recognizing have-nots against each other, we can redefine what the pie actually is to be that very tiny sliver of the actual pie while we keep all the rest of it. So it's like a pie within a pie and the people with most of it are successfully redefining what the actual pie is and causing the rest of us to fight amongst ourselves.
0: Yeah. So I was toying with the idea that Biden was the let them eat cake candidate, that that's really the nature of Joe Biden at the moment. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, Fixed that analogy beautifully. Remember what you said. Not at the moment. You said no. He's the let them eat their cake candidate. Oh yeah. Because in mm-hmm. this see in yeah. let them eat cake, there's no cake. That's the right. point. The right. the rent seeking elites in the monarchy don't understand that there's no cake. Right. And so that's an absurd. Only solution. they have cake. Only right. they have cake. Right. So they think cake is everywhere. Right. In this case, um, there is cake.
1: Well, there's a, there's an abundance of there's such an abundance of cheap goods that were exactly the things that were limiting until like a second ago, historically speaking, that, yeah, let them eat their cake. Cake's available.
0: Right. And so in this case, instead of taking the, you know, and again, we have to draw a distinction between um, the productivity of elites, which actually serves everybody, Mm -hmm. and the rent seeking of people who become powerful. Some of them have gotten powerful through being highly productive and contributing things that matter. But once they are productive, it's very hard to resist. They don't even necessarily know that they are engaged in rent-seeking. There are just opportunities that pay, and right. they do that which pays, and many of those opportunities are rent-seeking by definition. So the DNC has decided to point us at each other, and the basic point is, well, there's not enough cake, but if this group goes after the cake of that group, then the rent-seeking elites can continue on for another four, eight, who knows how many election cycles. For eight years,
1: yeah, the baked um, goods analogy gets twisted, but uh, it's like a cupcake within a pie.
0: Well, there are <laughs> twisted baked goods, not that many, but um, some very, you know, like a gl-
1: delicious ones. Yeah. Yeah. All
0: right. So anyway, that's mm-hmm. the developing model. Yeah. And he- here's the question: um, Presumably, if you're watching or listening to this podcast, you're you're wise to this stuff. You're aware of game theory. You're aware of what rent seeking is and why it's a hazard. Um, You're aware of the evolutionary forces that will take um, a corrupt system and make it more corrupt because the loopholes will tend to self enlarge. So if you can see it, then isn't this the moment? Wouldn't you like in four months for us to have turned the corner for something unexpected new and potentially very desirable to have happened? Wouldn't you like adults at the helm? I mean, don't you have a right to demand that as an American to have adults at the helm? Don't we all? So how about it? Fabulous. All right. So I know you have things on on your agenda for today.
1: Yeah, you know, no, nothing as big, but it all plays into part of why we need uh, we need big structural change, right? Uh, so maybe uh, this is this is all kind of working by fire here. Where I'm going to have us put something up on the screen if we can. You
0: didn't just suggest a trial by fire, did you? I I, I was about to, and then okay. I,
1: I I stopped. Uh, Let's see. Uh, if yeah, if we can oh, get. I'm on. Aren't you're, I? you're on because yeah. Zach is okay. uh, many hundreds of miles away. Um, all right. Let's see do that and then.
0: Okay. Hey, look at that! Look at that! It's Brilliant. like magic.
1: Okay, for those of you listening in podcast space, sorry, you're going to get a lot of this this time. Okay, so uh, here's a guy, Christopher Rufo. I don't I don't know him, but he's written a really quite uh, extraordinary thread. Twitter, on Twitter, Um, the first tweet of which reads, The city of Seattle held a training session for white employees called, quote, Interrupting Internalized Racial Superiority and Whiteness, end quote. So I did a public records request, he says. To find out exactly what this means, let's go through it together in this thread. So... um, it's, it's worth looking at. It's all the same garbage. I want us to go through this little, um, this first flyer that he talks about. And then I also want to talk about, since I went to the excruciating exercise last week of reading white fragility, of just giving a little bit of ammunition to people who are being forced to read it as if it is an actually anti-racist argument when in fact it's, it's quite not. Um, so first, This Um, Again, the city of Seattle, which, you know, the whole Pacific Northwest, unfortunately, which we live in and and love it, but this is a bit of a hotbed of this kind of thinking, uh, suggests that uh, internalized racial superiority reveals itself in values such as individualism, intellectualization, comfort, and objectivity. And there are a number of other things on this list, but um, this is this is the sort of thing we've seen over and over again. It is uh, basically equating enlightenment values and science uh, with the idea and, and, and understanding all human beings as individuals uh, with the idea of racial superiority, as if those aren't exactly ideas that we should want everyone to have and embrace uh, and engage in. Um, and on the internalized racial inferiority list, we have addiction, as if that is particular uh, to people who have uh, suffered uh, under racism, rage, self hate, self doubt, shame, uh, let's see, hopelessness, apathy, invisibility. Uh, again, this this movement is about division. This movement is about separating us. And unfortunately, what it feels like so we were just talking in terms of basically the DNC, the, the, the power elite for half-ish of the country, uh, looking at the accumulation of resources by a few and uh, seeking, uh, trying to put off any attempt to access those resources by the many, uh, and they are looking to divide us. But here's part of how that works, that they are embracing this incredibly divisive movement that goes by many different names, intersectionalism, woke politics, uh, social justice politics, uh, uh, identity politics, and it serves to divide. Are there any things on this list that you want to address? Well, before we move on a little bit. I want
0: to I want to point out that the tragedy of taking the values that are the stuff power is made of yeah. and not democratizing them, basically declaring them yeah. null and void, is it's it's utterly tragic. And it's obviously not going to work because anybody who holds onto those tools is going to have an advantage over anybody who decides those tools are not the stuff of power. Mm-hmm. So the only right solution has ever been to de- democratize these things and distribute them as widely as possible. Yeah. So in some sense, I think if you can see that far, if you can just simply recognize, hey, there's stuff that makes people powerful, like, for example, science, right? You got two choices. We can also declare science We can declare it unfair Mm -hmm. or null and void or whatever.
1: We can hashtag shut down STEM.
0: Right. What world does that lead to if we decide that science is no longer valid? It leads to a world in which whoever didn't listen to us has the advantage. Or we can democratize science. And we know how to do it, Mm -hmm. right? You and I were doing that for 15 years. It's not. It's very enjoyable, rewarding work to democratize science. So the same goes...
1: Almost everyone who showed up in our classrooms uh, was capable of... uh, learning and grappling with the tools of scientific inquiry of observing patterns and posing hypotheses and trying to d- distinguish between those hypotheses. And, you know, some of our students came from elite academic backgrounds um, but most of them did not. That wasn't the kind of school it was. And so, you know, we had people who had been, you know, who would fill out a high school who would, you know, who had, who had never gotten uh, degrees and who showed up and, you know, many of them were brilliant And some of them were just, you know, average, and the school system failed them because that's what it does. And almost to a person, they were able to do exactly what we're talking about, to uh, engage in an attempt at objectivity as they looked to understand the world. Because once you understand what is going on, then, then you can seek to change it. If you pretend that the world is not what it is, then it is much harder to change it from some fiction to presumably some new fiction, like, for instance, a utopia.
0: And even the students, I don't think they ended up in our classes very frequently, but even the students who, at the point they get to college, aren't really capable of that, A, they could be capable of it if somebody was willing to yep. invest enough time, and B, absolutely everybody who is born with a healthy brain, and I don't mm-hmm. mean mind, I mean a healthy brain, yeah. can develop into somebody who can wield these tools if they're given a develop- mental environment that reinforces that. So to the extent that there's any um, concern, the capacity is built into us, Mm -hmm. right? These are tools developed by humans who frankly knew a hell of a lot less than we do.
1: right? right. Um, right.
0: And the tools just simply work by virtue of the fact that they're elegant. And once you get the hang of it, you know, you don't even think about thinking scientifically. It just happens to you. So
1: Mm -hmm. So do you want to take that down now so I can look at my notes? Yeah. Let me try to
0: remember how that works. I'll, I'll
1: start talking while you're figuring that out. Um, so this th- this thing that we were just showing you guys is really, it's straight out of this uh, crazy Robin D'Angelo book, White Fragility. Um, it, it, it precedes that by a lot. Actually, I have a... I found an essay that I wrote from 1991 in which I'm pointing out the pitting of modernity versus postmodernity, which I'll actually share a couple of bits from <laughs> as well wow. later. Um, so, you know, to those who say, you guys helped create this beast, no. No, we didn't. We're not, we're not copying to that. Just no. Um, but, you know, James Lindsay, Peter and Helen Pluckrose, as the people who uh, put together that grievance studies... Uh, it, expose, I guess. Um, they don't want to call it a hoax. Um, this precedes D'Angelo, but it's the current Bible of the moment. So um, in the last episode, I attempted to steal man, maybe her most irritating point, right? The idea that all white people are racist. And I said, well, if you, if you understand that she's redefined what racist means, and now what racist means in her world is that uh, you are accruing benefits from an historical system, of racism and equality, uh, then it's true. Yes, if you have white skin, you continue to accrue the benefits from an historical system of racism and equality. That is true. Um, But uh, redefining the keyword and the sentiment is cheating. Um, Here are some other things that happen in the book uh, that... You know, I, I hope I hope you don't have to read it, um, but if you do, uh, she conflates systemic problems, and this is to that to that redefinition of the word racism. She conflates systemic problems with individual ones, uh, while claiming to be very clear on the differences. So it's kind of a it's it's a bait and switch with regard to the system is rigged, and therefore you are racist. Well, no, you can't you can't do that. Individuals and populations are different. Uh, she also conflates a biological understanding of humanity which is part of what we are trying to share with the world, with social Darwinism. So social Darwinism, as a a phrase in which both are capitalized, is a long debunked bastardization of Darwinism, which uh, has nothing really to do with an actual evolutionary understanding of the world. Um, But this bastardization known as social Darwinism uh, suggests that current social conditions are inevitable and good. You know, it's an excuse for why the rich are rich. The rich are rich because Darwin said so, because nature said so. No, that's wrong. And that's not how evolution Works. Um, but she, she makes this kind of point, and thus slotting scientists like us into this twisted and archaic belief system, she sort of just leaves that for, um, for her adherents to come back to. Um, she posits, among other things, that if we are indeed all equal, which uh, many of us believe us to be, um, the only explanation for disparities in condition must be the result of discrimination. And here she's conflating equal with identical to. Right? Equal and identical two are not the same thing. Um, she rails against the way that Black History Month is celebrated because um, she says it's, it reinforces whiteness. This will not be the first time, if you're reading this book, that you face a dilemma. You can't win. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, should we then not celebrate Black History Month? Well, then um, violence is, si- silence is violence. But if you do celebrate it in any way at all, apparently, then you're doing it wrong and you're further demonstrating your your racism. Well,
0: silence is violence and saying the wrong thing is violence or its equivalent. Therefore, your choice is to repeat after us. And yeah. the problem is there's then no basis whatsoever to object on the, uh because what's being said is incorrect, which almost right. all of it is, or uh because the policy proposals that are being advanced are um, going to lead to the destruction of things on which we are all depending. There are lots of, I mean, and this of course happened to us in Microcosm at Evergreen. Yep. Because the primary... Uh, Among the many objections, I would say the primary objection to what was being advocated was that it would destroy the college and that lots of people, Mm -hmm. including us, including our students, um, including the very people that they were claiming to be helping were depending on the college being functional Mm -hmm. and, you know, driving it into bankruptcy wasn't going to help anybody. So uh, was was there language at Evergreen to say that you were actually about to cripple the college and that nothing that you're talking about could possibly... Be accomplished if you do that? Nope, because the very fact of objecting meant that they were going to portray you as racist.
1: Yes, because because the movement has declared, has named itself cleverly, and this is not the first time we've seen this. There are many examples of movements like this. Uh, Antifa is one. Um, frankly, uh, pro-life is one. Um, but anti-racist, no, actually not. Um, you know, I, I I'm here to say I'm anti anti-racist and that does not make me racist. No, because the movement is named in a way that is that is designed to trap you. And if and so to go back to the to the book specifically for, for just a couple of moments, if you don't view race as the single most defining feature of the human experience, the single most defining feature of the human experience, you are, according to the book White Fragility, both racist and in denial. Used to be, of course, that viewing everything through a racial lens was what made you a racist. Well, times change, don't they? Um, so, this book is a hot mess of sloppy scholarship and cherry picked data, but that's not actually its biggest flaw. Let me just quote D'Angelo herself here a couple times from the book. She says, She says, I have been unable to hide my surprise that the black man is the school principal. Of all white people, she writes, I realize that we see ourselves as entitled to and deserving of more than people of color deserve. Wow. She's right about one thing. She's racist. Like Robin D'Angelo's actually a racist. And it seems that it's possible that it's her personal racism that is projected on all the rest of white America at the moment that's given jet fuel to riots that started as protests that were good faith and had a germ of necessity at the at the core of them, that we now have a totally chaotic and undefensible movement. So if you don't share Robin DiAngelo's racism, as in fact the vast majority of Americans don't, your defensiveness at being misunderstood and caricatured, as many of you who have had to sit through, um, sit through some of these workplace uh, trainings will have experienced, that's going to be held up itself as proof of your racism. And your desire to defend yourself against false claims being evidence of your white fragility, your white supremacism, uh, is in fact, it's another rhetorical trick. And it's, I think, the central Kafka trap of the entire book. Uh, You are X. No, I'm not. By denying that you're X, you've proven that you're X. Classic Kafka trap. And that's the only bit of argumentation in the book that she actually engages in.
0: So... I like this model. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, here's the question I have. Mm-hmm. So I don't assume that Robin D'Angelo is well-intentioned. She's obviously getting quite wealthy um, advancing this particular wrong set of ideas. Yeah. It is possible, though, that you know, we have argued that people have better access by orders of magnitude to what takes place in their own mind than they do to the next closest mind to them, right? You can see into your own mind, not perfectly. There's lots of stuff that happens in our minds that we can't see, but mm-hmm. um, but we do have some access to what goes on inside of our own minds. So Robin D'Angelo, looking to her into her own mind has discovered some completely preposterous stuff. Mm-hmm. And offensive. yes, yeah. it, offensive if you look at it yeah. um, and you know, it's, I'm not sure I would say it was racist because it, the question is, does she want to see it that way? It's clearly prejudiced, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the point is... i
1: unable to hide my surprise that the black man is the school principal. I mean, these are just two... There's It's riddled throughout the book.
0: Oh, right. That, but,
1: that's hard speaking.
0: So she clearly oh, this is, has this prejudice. These are the
1: examples she has shared.
0: Right. Well, my here's God. the point. She has effectively um, portrayed all... She doesn't know what's going on in other people's minds. Yeah. So having looked into her own mind, maybe she's just decided, you know, her mind is a good model for everybody else's and it isn't.
1: She's put a mirror up to herself and then declared that she put a mirror up to society. And, you know, she's trained as a sociologist. It, putting a mirror up to society is what sociology is supposed to be. Of course, sociology is long since captured and ridiculous. Not everyone. There are some excellent yeah. sociologists out there. Nicholas is being one. She
0: but She – you know, sociology suggests it's more scientific than it is. I would say she's on the sociopath.
1: Oh, good. I
0: don't no. know. It what? was inexpensive, so I just thought I'd try it out. Yeah, so you did. <laughs> Are those crickets? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um,
1: we still need that that cricket
0: audio. We need the cricket audio. Yeah, yeah but um, but anyway, it does it does seem like she is projecting yeah. and. One would imagine that she knows better than this, but even if she doesn't, how tragic is it that we are going to grind civilization to a halt over a misunderstanding over whether what goes on in Robin D'Angelo's <laughs> mind is a good match for what goes on in everybody else's mind? Um, so... I don't know. It's, it's stunning. Yeah. I will point out a yep. uh, friend of ours on Twitter may have solved the problem, cut the Gordian knot as it were Which? with respect to white fragility. Oh, wow. So somebody had asked so this? Oh. what to do yeah. in the case their, their employer was insisting that they read white fragility. Sure. And uh, Dave suggested that the answer to this was, I'll read that if you'll read 1984. <laughs> struck me as a very good answer yeah 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 all right that's good that's good so where should we head
1: uh actually, well let me just share um as i mentioned that i i'd found a piece of when i was looking for your the articles of interdependence uh i found a the declaration
0: of interdependence De-
1: thank you declaration of interdependence and you know where
0: you can find that nowhere except we have copies of yes, it around we do. but it's not online anywhere
1: nope you can't have it yet maybe nope. maybe later
0: um, yeah, it probably needs a, it needs an update sure, because, like our founding documents, yeah. right? There are elements of that document that I believe are timeless, and there are elements mm-hmm. of that document that I believe were very much resident in an era where the immediate concerns of the TARP program and too big to fail and the two thousand eight two thousand eight yep. yeah the mm-hmm. financial collapse and mm-hmm. the uh, you know the the rudiments in the uh, repeal of Glass Steagall and all of that stuff was very much front of mind. Um, and so, this is something you always have to think about when you're trying to build a solution to something: is how much is your focus on the particular failures that you've just seen um, going to loom larger than it should? Yeah. Um, but in yeah, any the case, whole
1: um, the Third Amendment with regard to the soldiers quartering in your home, lest the monarchy
0: come. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. That, not as big an issue as they as quite. they were concerned about. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, there's also a lot of stuff in that Declaration about the very frightening change in policing and the way it was being wielded as a system of extrajudicial punishment against Mm -hmm. people who would stand up and uh, protest. Yep. Uh,
1: Yeah, there were mass arrests of actually peaceful protesters happening in which people were being held for too long. And oh, so, right, held
0: and, for too long and right. dragged into a uh, a court system that then drained them. If you're anywhere, yes. you know, if you're if you're functioning on a budget that you have them to make, drain them financially, drain them financially, put them in jeopardy with their employers by dragging them into situations that they you know they couldn't get out of. Um, so there's all all of that. And there was also, in the aftermath of 9-11, you know, 2008 isn't all that far down from, from 9-11 um, in 2001, there was all of this stuff, which is still live today, where civil liberties had been eroded in the ostensible fight against terrorism. And mm-hmm. Occupy was portrayed as terrorist, which basically right. kicked in. Yep all of these special extra-constitutional provisions and allowed the federal government to sit down with investment banks and to uh, conspire against Occupy with some of the most absurd stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, agents of the federal government were actually licensed to engage in romantic and sexual relationships with Occupy protesters in order to infiltrate the movement and discover what it was on the basis that it was terrorist, which it wasn't. I mean, it's preposterous. So all kinds of madness. And yes, that means that back then those things were uh, right at the forefront of our thinking and generating stuff like the, the Declaration of Interdependence.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Before, yeah. We, before we move on, um, this actually was my final from 20th Century Debate, Models of Human Evolution, a class that you will remember um, as uh, being co-taught by a pretty staunch postmodernist, actually.
0: Um, So I just want to raise again the point you made earlier in passing, that when people tell us you created this monster and then it came after you, and so we have no sympathy for you, the answer is actually we have been fighting this directly Mm -hmm. since the 90s. Since we were in college. Since we were in college, since we were 20. 20, yeah,
1: yeah. 22. 22 at most. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is actually a, a play um, in which the characters this I'm just going to read four lines from this play, but the characters are science, human evolution, bias, modern, postmodern, feminism, and power. Uh, and I have a just an exchange between postmodern and modern here from 1991. this is you know my glib college writings, but postmodern responding to someone. Something someone of these characters has said, generalizations, all of them, break down these preconceived ideas of how we are and what we do and start anew. Modern, yet. Uh, modern says, better yet, honor and respect that which allows you to live in the convenience you now live in. Postmodern says, you're such an arrogant bastard, modern. Modern says to postmodern, and you're a soft and fuzzy doughboy with cauliflower for brains.
0: <laughs> You have long had a flair for the english language, <laughs>
1: so there's there's much more of content here but um you know, i I just again to those who are who are saying um you you helped you're part of the system like think like, no we've we've been seeing this for a long time, as have many others, and part of the question is uh you know how is it that many of us are being exposed to these pretty ridiculous ideas on college campuses. I think starting, you know, really in the mid-80s is when it began to gain steam through sort of the mid-90s, and then it really kind of died down. You know, we saw a little bit of it in grad school, and it mostly wasn't at the point that we were professors starting in 2002, 2001, 2002. It wasn't there, and then it really started to uptick again uh, in uh, in sort of the 2010s, and it, it has struck me for a long time that this is about those students back when we were students who did not laugh at this and try to understand it such that they could uh, fight against it with intellectual tools uh, actually became professors of these fields. And then they started proliferating because the fields themselves began to proliferate. And uh, they have now been churning out students who have now been moving into you know, media and journalism and arts and academia themselves. And uh, and so we have a cycle that is growing in momentum.
0: Yeah, I've, I've long liked your point about this, which is that part of what we are seeing is a generational phenomenon, yeah. right? Where these people who were studying these, what we've called phony fields have mm-hmm. now matured into a, a higher level of power in the academy. And that has resulted in other fields that have long laughed this stuff off being unable to resist yeah. um, because the, the, the power within the, the various faculties is distributed such that they can't. But I want, as long as we're here,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I want to steel man the postmoderns right? And then talk about what what the the competition really is here, okay? The postmoderns have, in my opinion, one point. And it's a good one, but it's one point. It's not the basis for field after field. The one point is that we are humans, and we have only our perception as the basis for everything we think. And even to the extent that you might have tools that would allow you to see something what we would claim is objectively your interaction with those tools is still subjective, right? Mm-hmm. So, And this is true. It is true. And it results in a lot of places where bias leaks into what we believe, even where it is supposed to be um, absolutely analytical and rigorous and devoid of uh, all of the things that might bias us. It can't be totally, mm-hmm. right? Now, here's the problem with that. So that's the steel man version. Perception is between you and the world. You can't escape that. And because of that, Um, bias is impossible to stamp out completely. And I believe that that's that's accurate. However, if you were going to try to stamp out bias, the number one tool you would want in your arsenal, arguably the only tool you need is science. Because what science does, the entire reason that it exists, the entire reason that it has beaten every other system is that it will tell you what's true in spite of your bias. Now you have to do it, right? If you have a corrupt system, if you have monetary corruption that has influenced Mm -hmm. how quote-unquote science gets done because it's only the people who succeed at some sort of non-scientific phenomenon like grant writing. Um, Or you have a repeat of a good old boy
1: network sort of thing with peer review.
0: Yeah, you can have all Mm -hmm. kinds of things interfere with proper science. But if you can do the science properly and you can be vigilant about stamping out the things that Cause science not to be done properly, then science will force you to discover the things that you don't intuitively believe, right? That's what it does. And so, yes, the postmoderns are right. Bias is a serious problem. Mm -hmm. What do you do about it? You science it, (laughs) right? To the extent that your science is influenced by things that it shouldn't be and is therefore biased, what's the solution to that? Better science. More science. It's science. That's the answer to postmodernism. And it always has been. So,
1: so I'm going to, I'm going to add, I'm going to, I'm going to say, okay, I think if I have to pick one, it's going to be science. Um, But I want two things. I mean, I want more, I want more than that, but I want science and I want art. Um, Because art allows uh, you to view the world through other people's lenses. And, um, you know, postmodernism, at least its modern, crazy, corrupt instantiations, are specifically demanding of us that we not see the world through other people's eyes. That if we claim to be able to, then we are somehow uh, revealing our own bigotry. Um, But art, uh, especially narrative art, you know, especially fiction in whatever form, but um, 2D art, 3D art, any of it, also just allows you to stand in someone else's footsteps and see. And science does this in a very different way. And and if I have to pick one, I pick science. Um, But science and art together um, are are going to be an incredibly potent rejoinder to this movement. And therefore, I am not too surprised to find um, the shutdown STEM movement and the... uh, the very wide number of organizations that we are hearing from and seeing, uh, in the arts that are being gone after by this movement. It's, it's, they're being targeted.
0: So I like this. I still think it's the science that narrowly corrects for the bias, but the fact is, Nobody reads scientific papers. I mean, scientists do write in their own field, and sometimes they read a little farther afield than that. But what moves the world is the conclusions that you come up with, the counterintuitive things that you discover through this process Mm -hmm. that then get incorporated into something beautiful and intuitive and uh, provocative enough to capture people's attention, Mm -hmm. which tends to be, uh, it's not even always narrative.
1: No, I, I said. I said uh, it's easier to point to with narrative, but it's not just narrative. Two D art, three D art. art. Yeah.
0: Or you know, I was thinking about
1: just staring at, at a, an amazing sculpture, you know, even an abstract one. It's it's easier to do if it's if it's a non abstract sculpture, but you, yeah, you, you learn something about a different mind, about a different human being's mind by by walking around some piece of art that's been created that is the product of another human mind,
0: and not even necessarily mind the mind is an interface and sometimes Mm -hmm. the mind is the point and its content is the point and that's what you discover but even something like you know there are some of these um, images of sculptures that very effectively capture the finest uh, fabric flowing as if in the wind yeah. and it's so compelling yeah. you know or there's a famous sculpture with somebody's hand on somebody's leg and the way the fingers depress the skin of the mm. person and the point is it's so compelling that it actually reveals something how could you render something soft out of stone mm-hmm. right so even that uh counterpoint tells you something about the way the world works yeah. or i'm frequently um, stunned by what is revealed by just simply changing one parameter of something you can observe yourself, like mm-hmm. um, stop motion reveals certain things or, you know, uh, the, uh, the way if you look at clouds and mountains and the way they interact uh, in a time lapse, and the thing is, you can read in a textbook all you want that the atmosphere functions as a fluid, right? right? But until you see, you see yeah, until mm-hmm. you see what the mountain does to the clouds as they move around it, it's um, it's it's like what we used to say, you know, an enzyme is a catalyst. Yeah, um, not, not not really. It that's, is a that's catalyst. incomplete it, at yeah, best. It's a yeah. catalyst in the same way that a factory is a catalyst, yeah. right? A factory is a catalyst for making cars. Right. Um,
1: And I mean, you can, so having time lapse is obviously a fairly modern phenomenon, but I think also art has, um, has probably revealed what is possible and opened up technological worlds very often. So the example that came to mind when you were talking that I, I imagine there's history written on this and I just, I don't know it, but pointillism, the, what is this 19th to 20th century, uh, 19th, 20th century, turn of the century art form in which dots are used to convey great precision in in vast scenes, seems to presage the idea of pixels. Like you know, this the the idea that you can actually reveal things through points was that in people's heads in Da Vinci's time? I well, don't know. It might have been Da Vinci's head because so much
0: was. But my art history is weak. But yeah, the I impressionists um, predate point formal pointillism. I think so. Yeah, and. I think what you're getting at is the retina is actually uh, it's the inverse of pixels it's you know it's just as a, a camera sensor would be yeah um, and there is this um interesting duality it's not the duality of man, but there is an interesting duality between the continuous and the discrete interpretation of the world, mm-hmm. and there are certain things that are simply discrete, and there are other things that are continuous, and then there are many things which do not fall wholly in one or the other category. Yeah. And therefore, one needs to spend time borrowing from the alternative in order to see what it is that you were missing, what's in your yes. blind spot because you had looked at it as discrete when in fact it was yes. continuous at some level.
1: So, and this is, you know, this is science fiction serves this purpose as well. Like uh, scientific investigations have gotten ideas from things that have been written in science fiction in part because what it, what science fiction reveals, what art may reveal um, in other forms is maybe the categories we are currently using aren't right. Or maybe the boundaries um, aren't quite where we thought they were. Or maybe the boundaries were where we thought they were, but those boundaries are moving because other things are changing. And art can allow you to live in that alternative space for a little bit and consider it, and sometimes like, nope, actually, not right. Interesting to, to spend some time there, but that's not right. And sometimes it can cause people to go, ah, actually... I think I think we do need an update or or a radical change maybe yeah. we need to we need to actually build a whole new foundation over here with a new kind of science because the categories we were using you know of boy I'm I'm also not up to date on the various older versions of what the world is made of but you know it turns out that fire earth water and air are not the the basal elements of life right
0: right um so it sort of hints at the periodic table but it didn't get there it's got the it, wrong things it didn't on it
1: get there and you couldn't you, you could not just do a brick in the wall model from fire earth water and air to get to the periodic table you actually needed to go all the way back in the decision tree to the question what are, what is it made of what are the fundamentals and rebuild from there
0: yeah um yeah so that's it's a very uh that's a very good way of putting it. So I guess...
1: So we're at... Oh, I don't know exactly when we started. We're probably yeah, I'm trying, fi- 50, 55 minutes. 50
0: or 55 minutes. All right. Yeah. So we have a few minutes left, I guess. Yeah. Um, did you oh, have yeah. something you, in mind I, with...
1: Yeah, let's uh, let's spend a couple minutes here. So um, I was listening to uh, your conversation with Eric in uh, the the podcast that you did with him a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. a week or two ago, and you mentioned Flatland, and uh, I thought... I I imagine that most of our listeners, uh, viewers know this book, but it prompted me to think this, and I know you want to add something to this. So this is, um, this is this book, I think you can see it, Flatland by Edwin Abbott. Um, It was written in 1884, uh, Victorian era England, and I read it when I was 12, 11 or 12, something like that, and um, I had two very distinct reactions to it. One of my reactions uh, was in line with why I think you invoked it in that mm-hmm. conversation with Eric, which was it provides it, – it does exactly what we were just talking about, in fact. It provides a lens into imagining what it might be like to live in a universe in which there are things bigger than the universe that you live in and therefore so outside your sphere of experience that you can't really interpret them. So when a sphere walks through the flat the two-dimensional flatland universe of of Abbott and I haven't reread it in decades so I'm not, I may be butchering it a little bit but when a sphere comes through the plane that is flatland it looks like first a point and then a line and then I I'm sure. I guess it'd be a point and then a circle that gets bigger and then a circle and then a point and then it disappears again. Um, but it it can never reveal itself as a sphere because spheres don't exist in a two-dimensional landscape. Uh, and that, that alone, that understanding what won't be understandable, what won't be comprehensible, even if you can get glimmers of it, in your current world is amazing, and I th- I think it along with so many other experiences in my life helped me think about you know how, so how do we know you know how what are the questions we could ask and how would we end up answering those questions? Um, so it was you know greatly um, foundational for me when I read it, and then it's also true that this book is deeply sexist. Now it is, <clears throat> I just I went to Wikipedia just before this to see um, just to Wait, just to look. It's at- not
0: deeply sexist. It's a Objectively sexist. It's objectively sexist, but no. It's mathematically sexist. But
1: but dude, here's the thing: Wikipedia says it's satire in this regard, so let's just put that (laughs) aside because I think this is revisionist history. But you know, who knows? Like maybe. But the fact is that in the two-dimensional landscape where uh, males are um, triangles or squares and they aspire to be circles with sort of an infinite number of sides, uh, they're therefore two D. They're polygons. Females are one-dimensional. They're lines. And in the one-dimensional landscape where where men are lines, women are dots. And in the three-dimensional landscape where, uh, where men are cubes or or, or uh, spheres, women are polygons. It's insane. It's deeply insulting. And I read it and went, are you kidding me? And then I thought a little bit about the scant that I knew about the era in which he'd been writing, which at that point was 100 years prior. And I thought, okay, well you know what, I can still still get out of this book the remarkable truth in it while also being perturbed by this insanity in it. And that doesn't actually alter the the value that I have in it. So that was 1884. Um, There's also, so this is a copy of a book that my mother gave to our son, Zach, a number of years ago. It's it's Heinlein, Robert Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land and Starship Troopers. Great books, both of them, uh, written, let's see, Stranger in a Strange Land was written in 1961. Uh, Heinlein also has a tremendous amount to teach us, and he's also of his era, and it's, he's kind of misogynist. And I actually remember having a conversation with one of our male students on our Ecuador study abroad trip in 2016, 2016, we were, we, a bunch of us were sitting around talking about science fiction, and I mentioned Stranger in a Strange Land. He said to me, how, how can you like that book? it's yeah you know, the the treatment of women i said yeah treatment of women isn't isn't great in that book and i don't like that part of that book but that doesn't mean that there's not things that you can learn from it so the idea of canceling entire uh you know historical figures or works of art uh, or scientific ideas because the people who engaged in them were of their time and flawed is obviously a road that we should not want to go down. And you have a a better example yet.
0: Well, there are are so many examples. But before we get there, I do want to say I hope somebody will – take up flatland and bring it into modernity where it turns out maybe i mean you can imagine um females being prisms that only intersect the plane in which flatland takes place at a line so this so, is
1: about male perception that right, they were limited males failing
0: to grok what females are about <laughs> good. yeah i think that'd well be cool.
1: nicely introduced grok there from Heinlein himself
0: well there you go there you go although i still can't quite spell it grok yeah
1: g-r-o-k g-r-o-k, G-R-O-K. i would yeah.
0: tend to say c-k And then I I get corrected. This is all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, um, Yeah. Well, I would just say, look, you know, the problem is, and, you know, I don't even know how to do this with the internet. I know how to do this in a conversation with human beings, but I don't know how to do it with with the internet because you have to fear the editor, right? What the editor is going to do with what you say is potentially going to overwhelm any point that you can make. And that's a, a tragic lesson one I learned in college the first time and keeps getting reinforced. But obviously you need Mark Twain, for example, Mm -hmm. in order to understand race in America, because he gives us a snapshot and he gives us a very humane snapshot, but it is not a snapshot devoid of what we now call the N-word. And Mm -hmm. if you want to cancel that book, Mm-hmm. because it contains a word that you've now been told that any white person who utters it is guilty of a crime. Well now you've just robbed us of one of the greatest tools we have. That's right. Um likewise and I, you know maybe my favorite song ever is Hurricane by Bob Dylan from right?
1: 1976.
0: 1976. Mm-hmm. It is for those of you who don't know and I really would invite you to go find it and listen to it carefully, right? It is a story of Hurricane Carter, Reuben Carter, who was falsely convicted of murder in a deeply racially biased um, court system, right? Mm-hmm. So the police and the courts conspired against him and convicted him of a murder that he had not committed. And the song is blistering. Right? It is an absolutely blistering attack on the system that did this. And it is also, um, it is not an overly analytical song. It is a song that um, indicts the humanity of the people involved in this crime and humanizes Reuben Carter, who we have been led to believe, we in civilization have been led to believe, is a bad guy who did something bad and that's why he's been locked up. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, that song contains, I hate that I have to say the N-word here, Mm -hmm. right? But I don't know how else to do it, so I don't get edited to that Mm -hmm. one sentence and it'll it'll be about one word, you know? I'll find video of me uttering that one word out of context and suddenly the ability to say, here's what I was saying, I was quoting Bob Dylan, I was quoting Bob Dylan in a song in which he is revealing what, again, I don't think this is the right word, but he was revealing what we now would be told is white supremacy, Mm -hmm. right? A system... That is systematically indifferent to the interests of black people, right? He goes through it. He explains, he actually details not only the circumstances of the, the crime and the investigation, but the bad witnesses and their perverse incentives and the structure of the court that Carter finds himself facing, the whole, and the press. I mean, he goes through the whole thing. It's just, it's a tour de force. And the point is, you, you want to rob us of that? You want to rob your kids of that? You want to explain white supremacy and not have that as one of the tools in your toolkit? Isn't right? like, the
1: song actually um, instrumental in getting Hurricane Carter released?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, it, so the point is like, this is how it's done, people, right? Mm-hmm. It's done narratively and it's done unflinchingly. And it Can is not. You do not the done,
1: stanza and just not, I mean, I understand why you don't want to I do say the, the word. The stanza, I, I,
0: I, I, it is. Frankly, against my religion to to do it and say N-word, because for one thing, it interrupts a rhyme that's important to the whole thing. The
1: the rhyme is obvious, though.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So the stanza, I know it by heart, but can I do it in front of the camera? (laughs) Um, Let's see. It was... um, Oh, to the white folks who watched, he was a revolutionary bum. And to the black folks, he was just a crazy nigger. Nobody doubted that he pulled the trigger. And though they could not produce the gun, the DA said he was the one who did the deed. And the all-white jury agreed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's beautiful poetry. Yeah. Right? And it is a very ugly word. And it mm-hmm. has to be there in order for that piece of poetry to work.
1: Yeah. I think you probably couldn't have called it up after, uh, after saying the word if you would replaced it with N-word there right? You you would have lost your place.
0: I would have lost my place and I would have been heartbroken that this important tool had been made dull. I mean, what do you do? So look. And and I mean,
1: just like, it's obvious, it's obvious that this is not a word that you are trying to use.
0: I have no need of that word uh, to use in earnest, but sometimes there's a need to discuss its use in twain or to discuss its use by Dylan or to discuss its modern use. You, you don't, you need discretion.
1: and You, know, you have
0: to, the, yeah. the only way a system can work is if you have discretion to decide where a use is legitimate and where a use is illegitimate. And you know what? You're probably even going to have to be generous because even if you say, well, Twain is a legitimate case, Dylan is a legitimate case, most cases are illegitimate, and that's true. Mm-hmm. There are going to be some gray area cases, yeah. right? And I mean, in fact, who was it? This woman who just got canceled for wearing blackface. While mocking, oh, uh,
1: oh, who was it? the uh, The juror, the the talking head on I'm, TV. Is
0: it Megan Kelly? Is it Megan Kelly? Gosh, yeah. we should know. Mocking this, but- her when, in fact, what she had done was say something super clumsy. But you know, she. She had said something super clumsy about black faces. She's trying to navigate something. Mm. That's my recollection anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then somebody makes a Halloween costume mocking her for her tone deafness on this issue. And you're going to ruin her life over this? I mean, yeah. even if it's an error, it's not a, an error of some you know, profound yeah. rot at her core. It's an error. Now, we've you talked about the death of
1: empathy. It's also the death of satire.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Again, the tool you would want Mm -hmm. most prominently Mm -hmm. uh, at this moment in order to sort out this really difficult stuff, you're going to rob us of satire. That must be because you have an objective that involves power. And if we can satirize stuff, if we can laugh at ourselves, then you won't get there. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, um, I think we are at a little over an hour, and I don't know how how we do this part here. I have some announcements. Um, do you have any more announcements before we sign off?
0: Um, come find us at Unity 2020. There you go. Uh, come to uh, articlesofunity.org. The hashtag Unity 2020 will also lead you to our Twitter handle at Articles of Unity. Do you have the final card to put up
1: while I announce some things, or or do we not have that capability?
0: If I can figure it out.
1: Okay. While you're talking, I will say um, the standard, the now standard things that we say at the end that we will do uh, start another live stream in about 15 minutes. Well, we will be taking your super chat questions starting with uh the top monetary value ones from this live stream and then moving about halfway through uh to the questions that come in in the order that they come in in the next live stream that that link i think is already live or it is start it is set to be live soon i don't know we'll we'll figure we it will out
0: discover yeah. the state of that link yeah. and <laughs> get it to you in the description of this video very very, uh, very shortly quickly. after we go
1: off here um so we have uh, a Clips channel now, uh, which uh, we've got a we've got a very good guy who's making clips uh, from these episodes as they come out, and he's working backwards a little bit as well, uh, Dark Horse Clips, I think is what it's called, unfortunately I don't have it exactly written down, but Dark Horse Clips, please go subscribe um, if you are, if, we've been hearing from a lot of people that they're looking for bits from, from these episodes so that they don't have to necessarily ask people to share an entire hour or hour and a half. Um, we have the Dark Horse membership at my Patreon, which gives you access to a uh, private Q and A every month uh, with the two of us. And, um, and if you're also- thinking
0: about that, go check out the last one, which you can access. Right.
1: Well, you have you know you have to be a member to access it. It's private.
0: To access the prior one. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, not, they're, they're like our Q&As that we do here, uh, except it's a smaller group. And so those who were involved um, live last time uh, were able to chat in a more constrained and uh, uh, they were able to basically work the conversation more effectively than I think can happen in a live chat that happens here. Um, so they're they're live, and then we leave them up. And then also we've there's now a Discord server um, that uh, we are making available to uh, patrons of either of ours at the five dollar and up level. Anything else? Nope.
0: No. I think that about okay, does it. So in about fifteen minutes we'll See be back. See you in about fifteen minutes. Um, thanks for joining us. See you soon. See you soon.
1: Yeah. We're still here.
0: Yeah. Uh, we need a. Uh, oh, there it is.